The Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Subscribe at YouTube, Apple Podcasts and all the major podcast channels. Visit our website at theradicalsecular.com for articles, insights, and our complete library of episodes. Support us on Patreon and follow us on social media. Welcome to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Sean Prophet. And I'm Joe Kipinti. We've got a very sobering show for you today. This has been a very, very bad moment for secularism with that bombshell of a leaked draft of the Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe v. Wade. The leak happened two weeks ago, and that's one of the disadvantages for us is that when news like this breaks, we have to wait a long while to talk to you about it. And boy, have I been ragey these past two weeks. So <laughs> yeah. I can't wait to get started. <laughs> um, we're also going to discuss the latest Florida insanity, as if banning books and the critical race theory psyop and the don't say gay law weren't enough. Florida has also rejected a number of math textbooks and has found a new villain, social emotional learning. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis last week also signed a new law mandating instruction about victims of communism. Joe and I will also be briefly touching on our usual hobby horses, climate, COVID, and Ukraine. Later, we'll be talking to our special guest, Kevin Bowling, who is the executive director of the Secular Student Alliance. So stay tuned for that interview. But first, I want to remind you that if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out our Patreon page, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles regularly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. The Radical Secular Podcast is brought to you by Cannibal & Co., located in downtown Jersey City and at shopcannibal.com. Cannibal, that's Cannibal with a K, stocks a rotating collection of goods ranging from apparel and accessories to home furnishings and fine jewelry. Cannibal weaves together its forward-thinking vision with its traditional roots to provide an expertly curated experience of unique and locally sourced finds. We're grateful to Cannibal for sponsoring our show. All right. Well, we're going to hold off today and do our t-shirts during the guest segment. So let's jump right in. Joe, why don't you start? Let's talk about Roe v. Wade. Well, so I I agree with you. This has been heart-rendering or heart-rending, I should say. And it's not unexpected. We've talked about this, you and I, and with Christoph and others. I mean, for years and years, we talked about this during the 2016 election, like until there was nothing left to talk about. I mean, over and over again. I am a very progressive person, especially in terms of climate, economics, and that kind of thing. But I was pushing 100% for Hillary because I knew... Uh, not only was she going to be a thousand times better on the issues that I cared about, but in particular about this issue and other cultural issues like this, when we have this this assault on human rights that's been building over the last few decades, she was going to be a you know someone that could stand up to it and that could be a source of strength for the rest of us. And, it, and, yeah. and, and that was denied. It was denied by really foolish and, uh, and unthinking anger towards and, and people buying into the propaganda against her. I mean, yeah. And ultimately, now we're seeing we're reaping the, the, the fruits of that, of that, you know, just bad thinking at the time. I can- Yeah. I can't even tell you. I mean, we did a show on this. I think it was like our 10th show or something like that called Trolley Problem Voting. And, um, you know, like 
this whole thing, every election, every decision that gets made, everything in public policy is always a trade-off, right? Nothing ever happens in the political world or even a personal world. You have to make choices. You have to make trade-offs. You don't always get what you want. Um, you get what you need, as the song says. And in this case, we needed Hillary Clinton. We needed Hillary Clinton like we've never needed anyone before in our nation's history. She was the most qualified nominee to ever run for president um, in, in terms of her actual qualifications. And that's true. Um, she was incredibly qualified. Yeah. And, and, and she was would, somebody who would have handled Russia, who would have handled COVID, who would have handled all of these things. I mean, we have paid such an incredible price for that. And now we're about to pay an even worse price. And this is the, like all of this was flashing before my eyes. I'm sure it was flashing before your eyes, Joe, when, uh, when, when on November 9th, 2016. And in the months leading up to it, I wrote uh, hundreds of essays and Facebook posts and, and, and everything else like that. And, I could not get through. I could not break through, you know, this idea that there was something fundamentally corrupt and wrong about Hillary. You know, the giant meteor, all of these things uh, were just psyops to sort of poison. Like if you were a lefty, you know, Hillary Clinton was kind of a conservative and kind of a war hawk and kind of, oh, she spoke at right. Goldman Sachs and, oh, you know, this, that and the other thing. All these all these criticisms. And, and you had people, everybody from Cornell West to Susan Sarandon to Robert Reich to, you know, all these people. And then and then and then Bernie Sanders and all of his people were just. I mean, rabid and vicious toward Hillary Clinton. Now, I know that a lot of Bernie supporters were saying things like, well, yes, he conceded and he did ultimately back her, but it's that hesitation that happened. And then, and then the Comey emails and then, you know, her getting sick at 9-11 and, and like all these things that happened. It was just one death by a thousand cuts. And, and one of those cuts was misogyny, frankly. I mean, it, it, it was just. Yeah. It was misogyny. Absolutely. So I could go on about this. I mean, I've, I've already I've said all this and, and I'm just I'm heartsick over it because of what I know this is going to mean. Well, and she lost by a hair's breadth, too. I mean, like Wisconsin was like, what, 10,000, 20,000 votes or something crazy like yeah, that. It was 60,000 overall. It was a super close election. So even the slightest nudge would have done it. You know, and I know I do know a lot of progressives, really hard progressive that did end up voting for her. But not supporting on the way was was damaging. Well, was this is damaging. the point, because even if somebody ended up voting for her, that person would have had 30 or 50 Facebook posts talking about how she was corrupt and right. And, and, exactly. and, you know, a warmonger and all these other things like that. Right. And and they had their ducks in a row. And this was a psyop basically that was uh it was started in, in 2015. I mean, this uh, it, there's an article in, in The New York Times basically saying right baits the left to turn against Hillary Clinton. So the entire battle plan was right. laid out in advance for this whole thing. And, and, and you can be it's not just for, um, you know, all the normal things the right is for, which is tax cuts and fossil fuels and, and, and you know, repression of rights. But it was also Roe v. Wade. What part yeah. of that did people not understand in 2016? They denied it. They again, they didn't see they didn't want to accept just how ruthless this alt-right religious movement is and what they really want. They want really, truly extreme radical change for this country. It uh, seems like they're going to get it. Well, you know, and here's again, I'm one of those people DeSantis is warning about teaching communism, right? I, I, <laughs> I, I'm a real hardcore progressive. And yeah. I understood that I had to be 100% behind Hillary. I don't understand why so many people couldn't see that, unfortunately. But anyway, we should move 
look look to the present now and think about what we can do and and, and lay out the, the the landscape right now maybe that's one thing we can we can fo- uh, work towards i mean well, I don't know. Right. But the, 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 the problem is, and the reason why it's worth kind of delving back and doing a, you know, doing a <laughs> figuring out whose fault it is. Cause, cause look, we, the left did this. Okay. We, the right, ultimately they let, they told us what we we're going to, what they were going to do. And we fell right into their trap. And so it's, it's important for us to take right. responsibility. That's well, not going to help women and girls. It's not going to help the women and girls who need abortions. It's not going to help all of the carnage that we're going to see as a result of this. Okay. But it might maybe help us next time there's a choice. Next time you're considering about, you know, voting for somebody you'd like to have a beer with, you know, or vo- <laughs> voting personality, right? Instead of policy. That's, that's a big part of what happened here was that we learned a hard lesson or we need to learn a hard lesson as the left that you vote policy, you vote party, because that's what the Republicans have been doing. That's what got them here. That's what got them a six, three conservative uh, majority on the court is they vote in lockstep. There is no questioning. There's no sniping. I mean, there's a little bit of this rhino business, but it's not a tenth of what happens on the on the left. So I think it was legitimate for people who supported Bernie Sanders to support Bernie Sanders during the primary. Yes, with without destroying Hillary, but they could, but they could have been, you know, they could have been rationally critical about her positions. But yep. after the primary, it was it was Hillary versus Trump, Trump, Donald Trump, that person, and look what he's done. I mean, this man pulled us out of the Paris Agreement. He yes. destroyed all kinds of long-standing relationships with our allies. He did so much damage. The tax cuts. I mean, it was just, how can you justify all that? Because you're just angry. You can't. And he blew COVID also, which, you know, cost a a, a, a million Americans. A million Americans are dead because of this. And potentially half to two, half to two thirds of them were unnecessary deaths if they had been handled according to the pandemic playbook that was left by the Obama administration for Trump specifically for this purpose. Okay. And they, they tore it up and they didn't use it. They purposely tore it up. I mean, it wasn't yeah. just incidental, like, Oh, we forgot about it. They, they tore it up. Yeah. And by the way, I want to say one more thing before we get off the subject of the 2016 election, yeah. quit fucking saying the phrase corporate Democrats. Quit saying that. Okay. Quit fucking saying corporate Democrats. If you say corporate Democrats, you're responsible for all of what has now happened. Okay. And you're going to be responsible for the next level of fascism and tyranny that has happened. Okay. We don't move forward as a country unless the entire center of the Democratic Party moves forward. Okay. And we've got somebody like Joe Manchin, who is a Democrat in a red state. Without Joe Manchin, as much as we all love to to, to hate on him, okay, without Joe Manchin, we don't control the gavel in the Senate. Okay. We wouldn't have even gotten the, you know, the, the, any of the things passed through the Senate that, that we, that Joe Biden has gotten passed. So whenever you use the phrase corporate Democrats, now I, I am no friend of Joe Manchin and I'm also very angry at, at Kirsten Cinema. Okay. These, these two, but I would not use that phrase corporate Democrats. They, they have just basically betrayed the party. Okay. And that's enough to say. But there's yeah. a lot of other accusations that would be, you know, people on the left who are Bernie supporters would label like half of the Democratic caucus as corporate Democrats because they don't support X, Y or Z policy. And I think this is a lesson that we have to learn once and for all. Stop using corporate Democrats. OK, we are yes. all Democrats. 
Yes, and the larger, absolutely, I agree with you 100%. And the larger, the larger lesson is strategy. You can have policy differences, you can have philosophical differences, but, but politics is the art of the possible. And we have to be realistic about what's possible. Uh, yes, you want a revolution, wonderful. You want a revolution. But right now, where the rubber meets the road is human rights, climate change, like all of these things that are existentially important that yeah. you can't just throw under the bus because of your ideology. Okay? Right. I, I mean... I love AOC. I love the squad. Okay. I love these guys. They are there, you know, uh, even Bernie Sanders. I voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary in 2020. Okay. Like I am, I am as left as you, Joe, if not, if not more so we're, we're right, we're right in there. We are comrades in this. Okay. But, um, these policies are not getting implemented. And even if they did get implemented, they won't pass the Supreme Court. Like this, this, we, we really, really screwed ourselves on this. And, and this lesson has to be learned if yeah. we're ever going to claw back anything that we expected like from the 1960s forward in terms of expanding human rights yeah. we have got yeah. to hold together as a party and stop demonizing people who are trying to get elected in the middle of this country and you know and who maybe yeah and, and who maybe some of these people may be taking money from from big corporations yeah they are because that's the way our system works now is you have to take money to get elected have to and so if we want our policies to have any chance at all we have got to stick to the center of the democratic party that's all I got to say about that. Yeah, it's a good postmortem. We have to be strategic. We really do, and we have to be pragmatic about what's possible. You can have the long view. If you want to get rid of capitalism, look. I think there's a lot of problems with capitalism. I think we can talk about that until the you know, cows come home. Whatever your ultimate goal is, yeah, go for it, but also be strategic, right? Look at the moment, understand the suffering that will happen if you do this or that. Right. Yeah. You can say, I'm not going to, you know, I, I don't, I, I, you know, I, anyway, let's, let's go ahead and move on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, we, and, and, and um, I think it was important to focus on that. We were going to talk, you know, a little bit more about COVID and climate and Ukraine. I think we can, we can skip that for now because this is really the thing that's happening. You know, the central thing that's happening in our country is that we have just lost an extremely important human right for half the population and it'll probably get worse because of the, because well, we, of the rule. Yeah, well, it will get worse because this isn't just one right. This is, you know, it all fits together. These rights, they, they support each other, right? And when one goes down, when the major one goes down, all the others are weaker and they're more fragile now because of that. Uh, this, is, this is bad news. It's bad news in every sense, shape, and form we can think of. I mean, in, in terms of my issue, right, Green New Deal and, and, and uh, a sane energy policy and all that, the Supremes yeah. Court is going to stand in the way of that as well. They so, very well might. Uh, and we might, we actually may come to the point where we recognize, um, I hope this is not true, but we may come to the point to recognize the 2016 election as having been more consequential in American history than the Civil War and in the opposite direction. And so I think, I think that's, that, that, yeah, I think that's true because I honestly believe that we are really unraveling as a society, as a nation. And, almost every level we are we're i mean if you look at it even if you got rid of climate change let's say take that out of the equation right and just look at what we're doing with energy policy when we mm -hmm. have a finite resource it's getting harder and harder to procure right you know the the cost 
uh, of, of procuring oil, let's say, is far, far greater than ever was before. Back 100 years ago, you know, you wanted 100 barrels of, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you wanted 100 barrels of oil. All you have to do is put in one barrel worth of effort to get 100 barrels, right? Because it was just, yeah. you know, you, you just dug a hole and it was squared out and you just tapped it. Now, if you factor in everything, including costs of, of uh, transportation, you know, extraction, uh, turning it into gasoline and all that, it's like four to one. It goes from 100 to 140. So at a certain point, it's it's becoming more so unviable as a resource. Even if you factor away environment, pollution, the 11 million people that die from fossil fuel pollution every year, climate change, yeah. it is not. we have to transition away from that resource as, as, uh, as expediently as possible for a whole bunch of reasons, and we're just not doing it. We're not yeah. doing it. Well, and I read a really alarming article this week that didn't seem to get a whole lot of mention, but it should, people should be thinking about this. And that is we have an environment right now where, um, yeah, we got an embargo going on with Russia. You know, we got some oil off the world market, but, um, OPEC is actually not pumping as much as they agreed to pump. And they're oh, not yeah, pumping there's all it. kinds of weirdness yeah. happening with that. They're not pumping it because. I mean, this is this is record prices, right? We've got like almost record prices and they're still not pumping more oil because they can't. And yeah. it's a combination of of declining uh, resources. Right. And also declining investment. And so this is something that, you know, I, I was on this sort of peak oil. We're running out of oil thing right? back around 2005 when everybody else was, too. And it turned out not to be true because we've been using a lot of enhanced oil recovery methods. But like you're talking uh, about, cracking. Joe, that. That, yeah, the, the, and, and tar sands and shale and all that. And, and the thing is, is that the energy returned on energy invested, which is what you're talking about, you know, is dropped right. from like, you, like you said, a hundred to one to maybe four, maybe even less than, uh, four to one. For tar sands, it's like 1.4 to one. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, so it's, this is really, and, and, and so we should have done all of this. We should have dealt with this climate and resource issues, you know, back in the nineties when we had the chance. We knew about it and oil was cheap. It was still plentiful. And again, another consequential election, Al Gore coming in in 2000 or <sighs> George W. Bush, who yes. took us more towards oil again. So this is, this is a long-term issue. Uh, all of us have been talking about it for most of our lives. All of us have been concerned about it. And, but here we are. So uh, and, I just <laughs> go ahead, Joe. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, if you look at oil, the, the real correlation, the relationship between energy and economic growth, it's, it's inc the coefficient is almost one-to-one. -one. I mean, it's just, they go hand in hand. So if we start running out of energy, if we don't have enough energy supply, that is going to mean it's going to, it's going to hit the economy hard, Very really hard. Because so oil is food. You're eating oil. Whenever you eat food that's been shipped in from anywhere, you're eating oil on your plate. Like, that's what it is. Yeah. Everything, you can't underestimate how important oil has been to the modern world. It it's underlies everything. And because everything needs energy, right? Food production yeah. in particular. But everything does. And so we need that energy. I mean, we, we can do some with efficiency, but not nearly as much as you think. Like, we've gotten more efficient in this country because we exported our industry which is very yeah. inefficient, the hard industries. And so we gotten a lot more efficient, but it wasn't because we all of a sudden had these incredible you know, energy innovations. Uh, I mean, yeah, some, but we, are, well, we have screwed ourselves. 
Ultimately, we have to transition to renewable energy, but guess what? That takes oil as well. So even the transition takes, takes oil and time. And so it's like we, um, anyway, 2000, 2016, <laughs> making this very difficult. So, yeah. but I want to talk about, I just, I just want to take a brief detour now because our, our, our guest today concerns is, you know, he's sure the head of the secular student Alliance. And I, and I want yes. to talk about something that's going on with students, which is Florida. And, um, you know, this whole thing is just, it's another part of the Republican plan and it's diabolical. It's diabolical. And, and, and you're an educator, Joe, I mean, mm-hmm. talk to us about this. And it's been, it's not just been one thing. It's been about five things coming out of Florida. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time, like several years ago, they were, they were after anthropology for a while. They wanted to get rid of all the anthropology in Florida. That was DeSantis, yeah. I think. Uh, yeah. Because why? What, what was threatening about anthropology? Right. The study of humankind. It looks it challenges a lot of their belief systems directly. Right. And so that's what they're after. They're after they're, They really are closing every single ideological avenue that except for theirs. That's what they want. They want to, they want everyone to focus on this Christian nationalism, this uh, white Christian nationalism, as they have defined it. And anything that's a threat to that, they are going to go after. And that's what they've been doing. And, and what happens is, I think, with education, is education, like I said earlier, oh, I, actually, education is very secular especially higher ed and especially in public schools, incredibly mm-hmm. secular. We go out of our way to be secular, right? And we, and that's a tradition that goes back a long, long time. So the whole educational structure is a direct threat to theocracy. And well, that's mm-hmm. what they're after. Well, and if you start to, if you start to look at what they're doing, first they start out and they go, oh, you know, you're teaching you're teaching pornography to children, right? Like that's their whole thing, you know, there's sex ed, but then it gets, it goes worse than that. Oh, you're teaching critical race theory, right? And then, so you can't teach history now. Okay. And it goes even beyond that to now it gets it, the concepts that they're dumbing down, just keep getting lower and lower and lower. And there's, some of them are so innocuous that you just can't figure out what the hell they're even talking about. And I want to read an excerpt on social emotional learning to kick us off. It's from the cut and it's by Claire Lampin. So here we go across the country. Conservatives are increasingly mounting resistance to social emotional learning or SEL as a sort of extension of their critical race theory paranoia. Why is that? Time to unpack. What is social emotional learning? In short, social emotional education helps children develop emotional literacy when it comes to their own feelings or other people's. The goal of these programs is to build empathy and to help kids self-regulate, enhance sensitivity in interpersonal interactions and communicate. The Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, CASEL, a pioneering organization in the field, highlights five fundamental principles that teachers can use to guide kids to practice in the classroom and ideally carry into their communities. They are self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making, all of which feels fairly straightforward and hard to argue with. The encouragement of emotional processing seems valuable to crucial if the goal is to avoid raising a generation of little sociopaths. According to Washington, I think the Republicans want little sociopaths, frankly. Uh, according to the Washington Post, SEL programs aimed at fostering respect, kindness, and honesty, et cetera, have been standard in many K-12 schools for decades, particularly during right. the pandemic. 
Schools have leaned on SEL curricula to help students manage their mental health. But even before that, districts across the country were implementing SEL to combat rising suicide rates among teens. As NBC notes, some parents criticize those programs for fixating on suicide when realistically the goal is prevention and teaching kids how to recognize depression. Those pushing back against SEL often seem to have it backward, but their complaints line up with a right-wing worldview. And the right is opposed to SEL because over the past few months, certain conservatives have zeroed in on SEL as another Trojan horse for progressive ideology, the latest child indoctrination scheme, as the self-appointed Child Protection League puts it. Their, their names of their stuff are just always so, like, Orwellian. Anyway, um, <clears throat> per the post. For context, the Child Protection League describes itself as a group that, among other things, encourages children to freely express their political beliefs, moral standards, and faith in schools and experience personal, physical privacy and modesty in bathrooms, showers, locker rooms, and living spaces separated by biological sex. If that gives you a sense of where this is going, it seems a segment of the right fears that encouraging children toward consideration and compassion for their peers will lead to acceptance of their differences, whether in race or gender or sexuality or religion or any number of other identity-based areas of life. End of quote. Now, I mean, like this is just, you couldn't distill a more clear conflict between secularism and acceptance versus uh, conservatism right. and, and, and religious, you know, bigotry. So, right. but I don't understand how even it's hard for me to understand how uh, a, a right winger could object to, let me go back and read these things again. Um, it is self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making. Doesn't that seem like it, 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 what would be the problem with that? Right. It's just, well, it's, go ahead. It goes back to something you talk about a lot, Sean, and that's hierarchy. So the, the, the religious worldview and especially the outright worldview is about rigid hierarchy and social and emotional learning actually challenges that directly because if people are self-aware, if people are respectful of others, if people are empathic, if people understand their responsibilities and uh, try to, you know, all those things mean question, questioning authority when authority is wrong. When it, and and I think that the hierarchical worldview finds all that very threatening because ultimately what it means is enlightened individuals, like more enlightened anyway, right? Awakened individuals, the whole woke thing, you know, that, that's been like, you know, huh. characterized yeah. and caricatured and all that. But really what it means to awaken is to be to become aware of who you are what the world is, other people around you. And that's all about social and emotional learning, all of it. Yeah, it is. Well, I think it's a really great curriculum. And and the opposition to it really reminds me of another right-wing psyop in the late 1960s and early 70s when I, that I was hearing about when I was in like, you know, my, my, my dad was, you know, he's this arch conservative. He belonged to the John Birch Society, which is, as we know, started by the Koch brothers. And um he was just livid that I was being indoctrinated in public school. I was hearing this, this exact same language. It, it, it's like, it's like word for word, except instead of social emotional learning, it was called sensitivity training. And his big, yeah. big boogeyman was that, Oh, you know, they're, they're going to teach you sensitivity training. I didn't even know what it was. I, I had no idea what that even meant, but you know, I don't know why the hell my dad, who was, you know, theoretically a moral man and who had a sense of right and wrong would be opposed to kids learning to be sensitive to the feelings of others. 
we, we know the usual reasons that they think it's going to make people into snowflakes or soft or effeminate. I, I just wonder, I still can't figure this out. And I, I, I know that you, what you said just now about hierarchy is right, but I feel like I'm missing something else. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't explain it at all. Um, I, I don't ultimately as a human being, as a father, as a friend, as you know, a lover, as you know, a teacher, I don't understand that at all. I, it just, it, it's crushing. So people would think this way and be so threatened by having people who are emotionally mature. I mean, how, why is that? I, it, because it ultimately it would make for such a better world if we did, you know, nurture that, right? If we nurture that, the more we nurture that, the better the world becomes. And why they don't want that? I think in part, I think it is the hierarchy. I think, you know, this, this kowtowing to authority from God to your boss, all the way to, to, you know, all the way on down. Loyalty. Is an essential part. Yeah. Loyalty, all despite Loyalty. your feelings, you know, being well, even, 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 you know, going to war, being willing to, to kill another human being, you know, for your, for your country. Right. Like all of these things involve inverting empathy and, and Let's destroying forget, empathy. We are democracy, but. You know, in the on, in the books, and in some ways, in real life, we are still have some democratic principles. You know, people say we don't have democracy anymore. Yeah, we still are to some extent, mm -hmm. but uh, every single corporation is a fiefdom, right? <laughs> Top right. down, they right? are. That's so, true. Yeah, and, and well, especially when you when you have when when you say that a state is an at will employment state, that means you could be fired at will. That means it's a dictatorship. Right. There's no recourse. Yep. I mean, and, and unless, you know, so, sometimes there is now, you know, you've got HR departments, you've got EEOC, you can file a complaint or arbitration or a grievance if you have a union. So there are ways to mitigate that fiefdom in that corporation. But yeah, I mean, and so now you're, you're head of a corporation and you can still get screwed by somebody, you know, accusing you of sexual harassment. Right. Yeah. Social emotional learning is responsible for that. That's what they think in a way, whether they are consciously aware of it or not. That's what's causing it. They don't want people to be socially, emotionally aware. They want people to kowtow to, kowtow to authority, and they don't want That's to right. be questioned. That's, That's right. what's going on, I think. Yeah, well, and and speaking of which, you know, I, I just I have one more thing I want to yeah. uh, go through before our guest segment, and that is this incident that happened with the Don't Say Gay law and this high school class president. Okay, now Don't Say Gay. Uh, is supposed to be a law that preventing discussion of sexuality in first through third grade. So you might think, oh, well, right. you know, they shouldn't be probably talking about sex in first through third grade. That's okay. But in practice, the law is being used and expanded way beyond that. It's having a chilling effect on all of school uh, subjects and all of school, you know, anyone LGBTQ who is of in course, school yeah. is, 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 is again being turned into second class citizen. Um, and there was just a story from Florida a couple days ago. Uh, this kid, his name is Xander Moritz and he was graduating from high school, but the, they threatened to cut his microphone off if he referred to his sexuality at all in his graduation speech. Now, this is a guy. He's an activist. He's been an activist his entire student career and he's been very popular and elected class president and he is not allowed to speak freely at his own graduation. And this is from the same people who are now, you know, suing social media companies to make sure that they don't censor anyone, but they want to censor people wherever, whenever and wherever they can. So it just, I don't know. It, 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 the whole thing is just, it's, it's again, the bottomless pit of bad faith, the terrible hypocrisy. Yeah. Uh, they don't care about the first amendment except when it applies, you know, to the, the way they like it. And it gives schools a really easy way to suppress the identity of any gay student, making them feel like, 
second class yeah, citizen. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. I, and even for the first to third graders, how many of them actually have gay parents? They're not supposed to exist. You can't talk yeah. about your parents. I mean, come on. And I, even if it didn't, even if everything you said, which is actually right, wasn't the case, that alone, how, what are you doing? You're shaming these children. You're making them ashamed of their parents. Yeah. Another, another one of those, you know, a characteristic that belongs in a hierarchical order, right? Shame, right? right. Well, and it's it, it yeah. What happens when a kid is, you know, like in some in art class or drawing in class or whatever it is, and they draw a picture of themselves holding the hands, and there's two guys in suits, you know, with ties. Like you can imagine a, a you know a gay child who had two fathers would draw something like this. Are that is that kid going to get sent to the principal's office now for having drawn a picture? And what if another kid comes over and says, "Ooh, you have two daddies, right?" And then the kid says, "Yes, I do." And so now this has been brought up in the class by the children. Is that teacher supposed to? You know, these kids are going to get suspended. I mean, what's going to happen here? I, it doesn't make any sense. It all just attention, right? That kids pick up on tension, and this is going to create a lot of tension. Even if not a lot, I've said even if the teacher is well-meaning and wants to talk about it and can't. That tension's going to be there, right? So they're going to, the kids are going to know, they're going to associate that negativity with their relationship with their parents. I mean, and ultimately, what all of this is trying to make people disappear, right? Disappear. Yeah, erasure. People. Erasure. I mean, talk about, you know, cancel culture. This is like cancel culture multiplied a thousand times. Right. In terms of its, it's official, it's being done by the state, you know, so it's um, and, and, and here's the other thing where the state is getting involved in education in a really weird way, which we we mentioned in the intro. And that is this victims of communism bill. And there's actually a bill that requires I mean, this is signed by the governor of a state requiring the uh, schools in the state to teach about victims of communism. And they have to spend a certain amount of time every year talking about how communism hurt people. And yeah, like, look. Okay, it's totalitarianism. It's not communism, right? Like communism is an economic oh, system. Well, there is all that. We, yeah. we just like it's the whole thing. It's such a it's it's like another red scare playing out all over again. Well, they don't want to talk about social immersion, emotional learning. They just want to scare people about communism. Yeah. I mean, think about that. Think about what about how far we've fallen from a place where we had teachers who were progressive and who were supported by national organizations and had the support of their gov of their government to help kids learn and grow and and build a more inclusive society and now we have the exact opposite of that in many many states yeah what else can you say i mean uh we we need to take this seriously and do what we can to and we're going to have a guest on that's going to talk about some strategies. I hope. I think that would be great to hear what he's doing and like what his organization is doing. So maybe something we can concretely focus on and and, and start to do some 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 activism. We all yeah. need to. All of us. All right. Well, let's go then and introduce our guest, Kevin Bowling. He is let's the executive director of the Secular Student Alliance with over twenty years of nonprofit leadership experience. Kevin's career has included 15 years of student association management and on-campus program development from Los Angeles to Boston. For 10 years, Kevin served as the executive director of the California Thoroughbred Horsemen's Foundation, a charitable trust serving the healthcare needs of the industry's largely immigrant workforce. Most recently, Kevin served as the director of philanthropy at the Gay Men's Chorus of Los Angeles, a major LGBTQ arts advocacy organization whose youth outreach work has moved thousands of hearts and minds across the U.S. toward embracing LGBTQ equality. Without further delay, The Radical Secular presents Kevin Bowling. 
Hi, Kevin. Uh, thanks for being with us and welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here with you today. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's kick off and do our T-shirts. Uh, Kevin, do you have a T-shirt to talk about today? Well, I did. This is uh, if I can. Uh, this is our our recent edition. So every year with the Secular Student Alliance, we do a sort of lifestyle shirt. Um, and so this was our one this year. And so it's humankind and it says be both. So a little, just a fun little one and just a good, nice, good, positive message, I think, especially over the last few years. Yeah. Nice play on words there. Yeah. I was going to wear a similar shirt, my humanist shirt, but I decided to wear this one instead, Green New Deal. What's the deal with that? Whatever happened? Like we were all talking about that a few years ago. No, it's just like we have so many. It just evaporated. Well, I mean, there's so many the, other like powerful <laughs> things in front of us that we're looking at, right? So I want to just to remind people, right, that we need to shift in that direction. For sure. Well, um, my shirt today is I couldn't really, you know, I didn't have anything really topical uh, that uh, about this, so I wore my Star Trek shirt. Awesome. Well, that's fun. And and the reason I wore the Star Trek shirt is because we and we talk about this a lot on the show, Kevin, we whenever we things get dire and difficult for us, we always kind of retreat into, you know, the the Star Trek world. And, you know, it shouldn't have to be a retreat because we should be building this world um, or at least moving toward it, doing some of the things that would get us there. And instead, we seem to be doing the exact opposite of that. Uh, Yeah. Devolving back to the 1950s. (laughs) Yeah. Or even beyond. (laughs) True. Okay, well, let's get into it. Kevin, first, I'd like you to talk about your organization and the kind of work you do for secular students. I I was listening to another interview that you did recently on Secular Left, and we're a friend of that show. So, um, But I heard you mention some particular challenges for your organization having to do with COVID. So you just talk generally and then about how the pandemic was for you. Sure, happy to. So the Secular Student Alliance is a national nonprofit organization. And so why we're you know, the, while we're a nonprofit, the real emphasis of our uh, the organization and our purpose is really to support students in uh, college universities, high schools, and middle schools all over the country. And so, the vast majority of our students have chapters at their schools or at their colleges, and do a variety of programming, build community on their campus, uh, a, a foundation for activism and secular activism. And so, that's really the heart of our organization. And the national office is here simply to support all the students, provide lots and lots of free resources so they can be out and public and active. Um, on their campuses or at their schools, uh, and so, and then really just to support them in, in what they're doing. Um, COVID was is I think was has been interesting uh, for everybody, uh, and I think for a nonprofit sort of geared towards students, uh, and just how quickly in March of twenty, just you know, one day everyone was at school, and the next everyone was you know going home. Uh, it was a really interesting process, and I think for you know, there's obviously lots of religious students on campus and lots of non-religious students on campus, but the majority of our students, you know, through, through surveying, come from religious families. So when religious students went home to their religious families and their religious communities, they were fine. You know, they had that s- a similar support. When our students left, sort of all of their secular friends and doing their their programming and and being involved, they oftentimes went home to religious families and religious mm. communities, yeah. and so really mm. lost 
a big part of that support. So, I mean, literally within a week, we completely transitioned everything we were doing programmatically. Um, and so started individually mailing students and uh, of course doing just a huge variety of virtual programming um, just to make sure that the students had contact and relationships and, and still community with other you know, non-religious or secular students. And it was, you know, obviously educational stuff, but games and social stuff and hangouts and all those sort of things that they had at their campuses that they didn't have at home anymore. I see. Oh, that sounds really great. Yeah. Sounds really good. Kevin, I want to say before we start, just I really admire what you do. I think it's awesome. I think you should get well, a medal. <laughs> I, I I've done a little bit of it. You know, I worked. I'm I'm not an educator, and I, I I was an arts council vice president for a while, and I worked with LGBTQ plus communities, and I, I've done a little bit of what you do, and I think it's so important what you're doing. Thank you. Well, thank you. I I, I enjoy doing it, and uh, to me, really working with the students, and and really we're fostering leadership development and and building community just in multiple different places. So that's really the heart of what we do. And I, when we do our scholarship applications, uh, seeing what the students are involved in, because we it's, it's activism related, I'm just floored about the number and the amount of stuff that our students are doing just cool. out there every single day. It's just fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. It gives me hope. Yeah. Actually, to think about it. <laughs> Definitely. And we sorely <laughs> need that. <laughs> <laughs> we do. I mean, we get, we get, you know, like this has been a rough, rough couple of weeks here, <laughs> but I want to talk specifically. It's no secret that Republicans have been making huge inroads into sabotaging secular education for kids, uh, particularly in charter schools. But now even in public schools in places like Florida and, and really it's going on all over the country uh, and this assault on school boards and teachers that's coming out of churches. And it's really anyone who doesn't teach straight up white supremacist Christian dogma. Um, I have a friend who lives in Thousand Oaks, California, and he is just like he's at ground zero of all of this. And he was just telling me about how there's all this outside money coming in. Uh, from other from other states, from Republican national organizations into into some of the churches there and that they literally took over the school board and it took them all that they could do just to get, you know, to get reasonable, rational people back on the school board. And um, and, and this is probably something that is going on in thousands of little communities around the nation. And so I wanted to ask you about how your organization is dealing with this challenge. What do you see as the major pitfalls and opportunities of this political moment in terms of secular education? Sure. And I think that it's important to recognize that the Republicans and, and conservative Christians I, sort of joined forces a while ago and really mm -hmm. looked at how they could uh, get into local school boards and sort of take over the curriculum. And this is years and years and years they've been working on this, about mm -hmm. loading the courts um, with Project Blitz and the intentional plan and, you know, copycats, uh, bills and, and, and initiatives that could be placed into schools all over the country. So this has been a long time coming and for all intents and purposes, well-organized in its sort of implementation, and it's been a long game. Um, so this isn't something that I think now is going, obviously is going to happen overnight. Um, I think, fortunately, I think there are lots of strong foundations in our public education. Um, 
that sort of buttress a little bit about what the Republicans and current conservative Christians are currently doing. But I think, yeah, there's some, when we look, especially Florida and Texas at the moment, and the copycat stuff coming in Missouri and, and uh, Ohio, I mean, it's, it's a little unnerving. But I do think we have the, when I look at the upcoming population of young people, um, mm -hmm. so, you know, we're almost at 50% of young people are identifying as non-religious. Um, and with that, the come... Uh, or, or the abandonment of a lot of the um, dogma of religion, uh, and especially that conservative religion that we're seeing. Um, I, I think the current Supreme Court focus on, you know, obviously their move to uh, undo Roe, when you consider the number of young people who support reproductive uh, health and and their, their, their right to abortion, the long-term game is all of the young people now, and that's talking about being hopeful, aren't going to stand for this. So the things that we're seeing against LGBT, especially against trans kids, what we're seeing, you know, against women, as far as especially with choice, uh, environmental issues, which you know, Green New Deal, um, young people are super active and aren't going to be putting up with this. And as they become more and more politically active uh, and stronger and stronger vote, and we know about 85% of our students are registered to vote, um, we're going to see those changes. Unfortunately, we're, we have to now wait the long game, I think, for that to change. Yeah, it could be a very long time. I mean, with the Supreme Court, and that's the problem. I just hope that all these young people who are so on fire and so enthusiastic and they want equality, they want secularism. I hope they don't get slapped down so hard that they enter into that like learned helplessness. That's my fear because that's what happens when you've got entrenched forces that keep people down. You know, they, they try, they try, they organize and they, but nothing changes. Right. And so that that makes them cynical and give up and all. So I really hope that that doesn't happen here. Well, I have to say I work, having worked in higher education, it's public higher education primarily. I've been very privileged with working in a very secular environment. Like higher education, public higher education is is really one of the key secular institutions of our society, and we are maintaining that as much as we can. Uh, there, there is still a strong tradition of secularism in public higher education, and uh, so we are there to really work with students and and present a non-biased secular view on all the issues we are and uh so that's still something to let's not forget that right we still have some really solid um institutions in our society that are on the right side of things and we just have to the main thing i think is the assault we're seeing in, in secondary schools and, and primary schools where these religious, uh, you know, indoctrination efforts are something we need to absolutely focus on. Uh, but I do think, Kevin, that you're right. I, I see the same thing in my students at the higher ed level. I see a lot more uh, secularism, a lot more suspicion of, of, of religious dogma and an openness to different ideas more, more so than ever, really. Uh, so that's, that's a good sign. All right. Um, well, Kevin, I wanted to delve a bit into a topic that comes up for us a lot, and that is the important differences between atheism and secularism, because they're kind of two separate movements in a way. And in a, in a minds of a lot of Christians who are satisfied, you know, they're, they'll never be happy with no, anything less than total Christian dominance in all areas of life, which is their, you know, seven mountains strategy, which I'm sure you're aware of. Um, 
secularism to them might as well be atheism. But to us, we see important differences. What are those differences and parallels as you see them? And how do we work all of that to our advantage politically? And I think for you know, in looking at our population, we work with young people. They, you know, I think we sort of parse words a little bit, which it is important to do. Uh, but for for many young people, they identify with many different labels, and so they're not solely an atheist, they're not solely a humanist, they're not solely secular. They go, yeah, there are bits and portions of my life which interact and uh, and, and identify with and how I live my life, and so I think. The simple view um, of, you know, atheists is I don't believe in gods or gods or God or gods. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, I, I have very good friends in American atheists who say that's not it. And I go, it's true. But we'll get down to the simplistic, <laughs> the simplistics of it. And clearly American atheists is a great organization and like, social justice and what they're doing legally in states is fantastic. So um, and then the sort of the more the humanistic is those sort of those values. And, you know, I believe that we should be making the world a humane place and we should use rational decision making and, and how we do that. Um, secular, I think, is, you know, it's very much the, for me is very much the separation of church and state. And we appeal um, to religious people as well. Like you can be secular and be religious. Um, if you uh, and and there are uh, uh, you know there's Christians against Christian nationalism, which is great to see yeah. and are, are active and those sorts of things. Um, we choose the word secular just because we feel it's one of the more inclusive terms. So sort of yeah. wherever you are in that scale. We probably all agree, you know, the separation of church and state and, uh, and, you know, and, you know, our country was founded as a, as a secular nation. So it's probably something that we can all agree on. And then you may have variations of, of how you believe and how you want to live out your life or how you identify. Well, I mean, for religious minorities, secularism is absolutely critical, right? They, it, secularism yeah. helps religious freedom more than, than anything else does in a lot of ways. So you, you can't have religious freedom without secularism because otherwise the dominant religion just takes over. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of our students on campuses actually work with uh, Muslim students and Hindu stu students. So students of minority religions, quote unquote, uh, and LGBT students, because they are often in the same sphere and pressures from sort of the, the majority Christian presence, um, whether there's majority Christian or not, you know, that definite feel for that and the attention that, and that they get and really, you know, a lot of the privilege that they have on campuses. Yeah, for sure. And, and this brings up uh, my next point about this, which, you know, is that all of us on this show, including our co-host, Christoph Defoe, who couldn't be here this week, we, we tend very much to the left end of the political spectrum. And it's really our wheelhouse and what we mean when we say justice, equality and rational public policy. We mean social justice and we mean breaking down all aspects of the conservative moral hierarchy on race and gender and nationality and religion and sexual or orientation. I mean, we go after also the excesses of extreme wealth and, and we push for economic justice because you can't have, I mean, all goes together, right? So we think that any proper reading of secularism means not being just insistent on equality for all religions, but equality for all people as Absolutely. well. And my question to you <laughs> would be, is there room for conservatives in secularism, people who do not believe in equality? And if so, how do you reach out to them? Uh, and I'll have to differentiate uh, a little bit. So for the Secular Student Alliance, 
So we we don't have a political ideology, um, and so we uh-huh. and we have surveyed our students, and we know that the vast majority of our students uh, lean or are strongly progressive or left leaning, um, and but we mm-hmm. do have cons- a conservative you know conservative students who are members of the organization, and we want them to feel comfortable and have community and find a home and and to live out their activism whatever that may be. Um, so I think there's very much in it, for our organization is their place. Yeah. Um, I do, it, I do find it, uh, a little bit more difficult, um, personally, not professionally, I'll make the separation there, uh, to work with, uh, non-religious people who may identify as conservative. It seems like the, uh, conservative values, um, Mm-hmm. Oh, Trump, not and pun unintended. Uh, Trump, everything else. So you know, yeah. uh, you know. So I'm going to celebrate this Christian privilege and them discriminate against other religious students because it's you know because because they believe like I do politically and leave out the whole part of secular and religious freedom and and you know and equality. Yeah, well, it, you know, it's it's it seems like it's really um, it may be a stepping stone, right? Because um, I I I was raised religious conservative as as many of us were, and um, you know, I it took me a while to to come around, and one step along the way was, of course, libertarianism and atheism uh, had you know had a big part in that because I, I you know and you, you don't get deprogrammed out of hard right conservatism overnight. And so it takes a little while and sometimes you have to go through stages, but I just often wonder how people who, uh, you know, who don't believe in God and don't, you know, how they could be against inclusion. It's, it's, it's just hard. It's hard for me to understand because it seems like the religious impulse is the main thing that is driving, um, discrimination, particularly against, uh, LGBT people. Well, we've sort of looked at just, you know, for our students and the different activism that they, they work in, we really look at, you know, if you look at in the United States, so the, you know, racial injustice, there's a strong sense of religious backing that all since the inception and all along. And even to where, you know, at one point the Baptist convention apologized for their sort of uh, support of racial inequality. Um, and, you know, the, the strong ties with, when you look at white supremacy and, you know, the Christian nationalism and white supremacy, I mean, just goes so perfectly together in our nation's history. You know, the issues of, of, of women's equality and reproductive health, I mean, clearly mm-hmm. the, the ties there to the, the, especially the conservative religious dogma. And yeah, LGBT, especially with trans kids right now is just is obvious. And even, oh. I think even when you get into environmentalism and, you know, God created this planet so we could use and abuse it. And we, we have a better place to go after this. We'll, <laughs> yeah. we really need to take on this one we've got right now. Yeah, exactly. Well, well and, and Joe and I talk about that yeah. all the time. Go ahead, Joe. Well, the other thing is, I think that the religious right, at what you folks are talking about here is framing this fight against liberalism, right? They're framing it that way. They're saying we're anti-liberalism, we're anti-social justice. So they're, they are the ones that are, it's their religious beliefs that are impinging upon the public space, the public sphere. That's exactly a case of separation of church and state, but it's also about culture as well because we are a a a society a multicultural society and so we're extending our sense of being secular to that 
that at a cultural level too, in the public space, in businesses and so forth, we do have some standards about human rights and human dignity that we demand are supported and adhere to. And that that's also kind of our sense of what secularism means, because it really is impossible to disentangle those things. I would agree. Well, okay, let's move on a bit and talk about we earlier we talked about Roe v. Wade, and it's no secret that the GOP has been trying to overturn this decision for 50 years. Um, they told us they were going to do it, and now they've done it. <laughs> Barring some sort of last-minute change of heart, it looks like abortion is going to soon be illegal in at least half of American states and possibly a national ban in a few years. They wasted no time to start talking about that. So, And, and this is leaving aside the larger implications for privacy and birth control and gay marriage and um, a, a whole lot of other things that we haven't even thought of because um, we consider this to be, frankly, a disaster and a huge setback for secularism. How are you feeling? How, what, what will your organization do to support any students, you know, who after this ban or whatever are still going to definitely need reproductive health care? Well, our students are obviously advocates already uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, their access to abortion and we, women's reproductive health. Uh, so they are already active in these these arenas and already doing things in their individual communities. Uh, so we obviously support that. Um, and so as soon as as the uh, draft was leaked, um, we actually communicate with all of our students. You know, students, if you're one, when are protests happening? Getting involved with protests, sort of our stance to them about that. And we automatically came out and said, if you need a banner, and we came up with a couple different designs, like. Just let us know, and this will be in the mail to you tomorrow, um, so that you have a big banner to to you know to walk behind when you're you know at those rallies and those protests. Um, so we're super active. That we said, if you have your own design, send it to us. We'll, we'll send you a banner because we we want our students to be active, but in whatever they're passionate about. And clearly, for all of our students, this is not their pressing issue. Um, but I think all of our students, yeah. you know, I said for the most part understand the importance of this. And I think as you sort of brought off and, and Alito in his his um, recent interview to explain or uh, to, to touch on the leak <laughs> already has alluded to he doesn't like, um, you know, the the same sex marriage and uh, and those sorts of things. And right. those were not a, uh, decisions he agreed with either. And then the opportunity to to overturn those. So, yeah, I think this is the start of what we're going to see from this court. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really going to be organizations like yours and, 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 you know, who can, who can maintain these networks of, of solidarity because solidarity is really the only defense against this kind of onslaught. Right. Um, and, oh, do you have something to say, Joe? No, I'm just agreeing with you. Yeah. I mean, I do have a question for you, Kevin. I know if you don't mind me posing one now, um, I wonder from your, from you working with kids, what do you think? How are you perceiving their mental health? Are they are they feeling really threatened by this? Are they scared? Are they angry? Like again, it's it's you know anywhere from reproductive rights to LGBTQ plus rights. These things really do matter to a lot of young people, and they are existential issues for them. And I'm just wondering, what do you? What's your sense of that? I I do think I think I think this is on top of coming out of COVID. Um, and so mm. I think the mental health, the dramatic impact on young people's mental health, um, 
during COVID, which I don't think we're going to understand the long-term ramifications of for a while. Um, so, but yeah. I, that on top, and we really experienced sort of coming out this, this, what we call, um, sort of COVID fatigue coming back to campus and just this sent, you know, this real sense of, it was hard to re-engage, um, just for a variety of reasons. Not, and, you know, they wanted yeah. to, but it was just super difficult. Um, and so we've sort of been working with that and really doing a, a lot to focus on, on that aspect. And I think this on top of it, I think, yeah, I think, I think students are pissed off, um, just in the, the larger sense. Um, and again, I think the vast majority of students we know from polling and those things support access to, to abortion. And if, you know, one in four of women will have an abortion in their lifetime and much more women are talking about it and stigma about having an abortion, uh, is being reduced. They know people who have had abortions. They may have had abortion themselves. And so they understand the importance of this yeah. in continuing their education and uh, allowing them to continue their goals and the plans that they have for life. Uh, and so those are all super important to them. But I think when you're young, you sort of really sort of feel that, especially at this time. And college is that sort of, I think, a crucial time in their lives where this is extremely important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and this dovetails kind of right with our next question, which is talking about second-class citizens, because that seems to be, and that's kind of a tagline for the show, because it seems to be the goal of Republicans is to make everyone else into second-class citizens. You know, they want, they want Christians to be the only ones recognized as real Americans. They want um, straight, you know, male. It's like, it's all of this hierarchy stuff. And, 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 you know, you got, you got tiers, you got second, third, fourth, fifth class citizens, but, but either way, um, there are, there are people who don't enjoy full human rights. And this has been said in the past about atheists for sure, because there used to be actual laws on the books in many places to prevent us from holding public office. Um, but I think that the real second-class citizens at the moment are women and children, especially after the loss of Roe v. Wade. And with this sort of furious assault on truthful education, as I say all the time, equality is our primary goal and empathy is equally important. And this idea of second-class citizens just does violence to both of those concepts and it just pisses me off. Um, so are we just gonna have to live with the fact that women and kids are being treated this way? Do you see this turning around? I, I kind of already asked you that, but I just like, how do we give people hope about this? Yeah, I, I think that uh, obviously, I mean, we've seen, I think all have seen the maps now, the red states where we know there's going to be in, you know, 21 states, I think it is, where the trigger laws and laws will kick in um, to almost either limit abortion or completely limit, you know, uh, limit access. Um, but I do think there's lots of programs I think that are coming into place. And, you know, I have lots of friends who are like, if you're in an area where you can't get an abortion, I will mail you medication. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we're going to not that it's what I ever want to hope for that we yeah. have to have. Um, but I think the services there that are going to come out of this, um, and there's funds being created for, especially for uh, uh, women of color or women in poverty who can't, uh, don't have access to transportation or who are being uh, uh, overly affected by this, that there are funds that will be able to help them get transportation and get care and put them up in hotels and, and do those sorts of things to be able to help women access it even if it's going to be a thousand miles away and not in their state. Um, so I think the interesting thing is, is 
you know, and I th- uh, I'm not sure if it's Missouri who's looking at, and I uh, have not read all the language of the law, but it sounds like if you go somewhere into a different state, when you come back to Missouri, we can prosecute you. Yeah, I'm for hearing that. Murder. I'm hearing that. It's, it's, um, which is horrible. Which is it's just totally absurd. absurd. And it, it yeah. violates every possible, um, you know, protection of, you know, they, they say they want states' rights. Uh, who are they kidding? Right. They don't. They're not interested in that. They're interested in tyranny and, and, right. and complete, you know, dictatorship in America. Well, and this, if this was about kids and, uh, you know, then we would have universal pre-K, we would have, you know, we'd have all these services, we'd have free lunches, we'd have all these services to help kids grow up healthy and get great educations. But if you look at the majority of states where those abortion bans are going to go in effect, that is clearly not the case by looking at the demographics of how they treat education, how right. they treat uh, kids. So yeah. that, it's just it's just not true. It's That's last on their point. list. Yeah. I mean, children are always last on their list, you know, yeah, ac- who are actually born. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, we forget about them yeah. as soon as they're born. I just want to remind people of what happened during the Trump administration with undocumented children, how they were ripped away from their families. Uh, the legacy is real, is right there for us to see. Remember that Maya Angelou quote about, yes. you know, if somebody tells you who they are, listen, right? And we haven't been doing that. We have not been doing that with the right. We have not really uh, believed what they are. And they are, they have this real agenda that's not at all, you know, it's, 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 it's an agenda that goes against a lot of our principles and beliefs and our values you know as as human beings not just progressives but as human beings right it's it's it we need to take this seriously and we need to be sober about what's happening this isn't just a case of of, of religion you know and you know uh a typical what you think of with secularism we have you know, a totalitarian movement that really wants to change everything about our society and and we, we and really have to take it seriously. I mean, I can't stress that enough. I, yeah, I completely agree. And I do think the the hope again, I think, is for young people who do not share those values. You know, the majority of whom do not share those values. So we we unfortunately may be with this for a while. Um, but the reality is, I think this is going to backfire um, for young people, especially for the Republican Party. And even more increasingly for religion. Yeah, that, that seems so, too. And, um, you know, now that we've kind of, as we do repeatedly, every time we record a show, we identify the problem, right? We've identified the problem and and some of what's going on. And by the way, I think you're totally right, Joe. A lot of people are downplaying this in the sense, you know, somebody said to me, they thought, oh, you know, I bet you 50 bucks the, the, the decision doesn't even go through. And I'm going like... Why would you, uh, you know, like, why would you assume that they would, that this would not happen? Right. I mean, this is, they've been trying to do this for 50 years, right? <laughs> right. People always downplay. They downplay what was happening with uh, the kids in, at the border, completely yeah. denying. What well, was so happening. now that we've identified that, Kevin, um, we're, I guess, in a way, slacktivists because we write and we make podcasts and all that. You have an organization that is actually making a difference. And so how can those of us who care ourselves and our listeners get more involved? I know you have a sign up and donation page and all that for your organization. I want to sure be sure that you tell us about that. But beyond this kind of passive activism, I always think about what's the best way each of us can get involved to promote secularism directly in our own communities. If we wanted to go, if I want to get my car right now and drive out this weekend and help somebody, how could I do it? Uh, for us, I think there's lots of ways. And there's, if you look at, you know, 
all the, the organizations and the secular movements. There are multiple ways for you to get involved. This week is just ending Secular Week of Action. So based on the National Day of Prayer, like rather than pray and do nothing, get out there and with your hands and do stuff to help people. So there's been huge efforts, uh, you know, especially focused on homelessness and hunger uh, this past week of going out and helping people. So there are lots of opportunities for people who want to do things just to be good and to help their community. Um, so I, but I do, you know, if you're looking for sort of secular activism, I, you know, Freedom from Religion Foundation, American Atheist, uh, American Humanist Association have, uh, and Americans United for the Separation of Church and State have great action alerts that you can go and sign up for so you know what's happening. They focus on different things. So one's going to be national level, one's going to be state level. Um, so you know what's happening and that you can, you know, be educated and speak out to your representatives, which I think is crucially important for mm -hmm. us to do. Um, when we have lobby days, go and lobby if you want to. I mean, I think my first time walking the steps into the Capitol and going into my representative office is an extremely empowering uh, thing to do. So when they have lobby days and the next one I know is virtual, but if you can do it in person, that the feeling of that is amazing. And you will see all the other people out there lobbying and you will understand why it's important to be openly non-religious or secular and be out there doing it because the religious people are strongly doing it as well. Um, and for us, we look at really how how can we activate and empower uh, students on campuses. And so what I think, you know, for us, it's a our primary vehicle is having chapters on campus, so student organizations. So if you're a faculty member and can be an advisor or if you know some students, connect them with us. So we have a you know a place where students can get free membership on our website. Um, we have local chapters of, you know, of the Humanist Association or, or FFRF who are like, hey, I want to help. We're like, we have got a school just down the road. We'll send you flyers. If you can go around and just, you know, put those flyers up on campus and get us one student contact, that's typically all we need. And generally within about two weeks, we can have a chapter up and running. So we strike while it's hot and while the student's interested, nice. but typically we just need that one student. Um, so those are some very simple things, you know. So, you know, we also have non-student members of the SSA, so which allow us to provide free membership and resources for students. So that's uh, obviously another great way to, to help with that as well. That's fantastic. That's a great list. And uh, we will um, be, be going over that ourselves and uh, obviously both familiar with most of those organizations and, and interacted with them in the past. I believe I interviewed a previous director of the SSA maybe about 10 years ago on my last, on my old podcast. So, um, but anyway, uh, we are just very, very happy to have you and, and, and to have heard all of these great ways that we can get involved. Joe, do you have any final thoughts or questions for Kevin before we go? I think I have one last question. And Kevin, you mentioned that you work with art. And, and encourage art in your in your advocacy, and I wonder what you feel like. What's the role of art when it, as a point of resistance and, a, and as a way to gain solidarity among students and everyone, all of us, really? Yeah, we had uh, one of our students uh, from Southeast Missouri State, Kayla, um, did actually an entire presentation on art and activism and mm -hmm. even just as far as mental health and those sorts of things. So right. she did a session at one of our conferences on that. And so, But I do think there is 
the expressive nature of of art and the creative nature of that i think is extremely pa powerful in representation and storytelling and evoking emotion and those i think are highly important things especially for young people trying to figure out you know figure themselves out and what's important to them it's a great outlet and vehicle um, but also it's the way it impacts other people and so oftentimes art can go and art can be done and stays when a protest or something is over and we see that and it continues its impact and its influence and so and i think uh you know there are lots of, of comedians and musicians and, you know, sculptures and things like that that are, are coming out of the secular community. And I think, you know, encouraging that uh, is even more important. And we actually have one of our scholarships is specifically for students who use art uh, as, as part of their activism. Hmm. Interesting. That's fantastic to hear. And I, I, I couldn't agree more, actually, because I think art is, you know, it's something that... Um, <laughs> It's hard to put into words just in the way that a piece of art can change a space, a room, uh, a city, you know, just just having it there can change the way you feel about yourself. And I think it's so important, especially to have non-religious art, because our, our world is so full of religious art and and things that are modern, things that are that are inclusive, expansive, uh, really, really important stuff. Definitely. All right. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for being with us today. We really enjoyed every part of this. Thank you. It was great being here. Enjoyed it. Yes. Right, Joe. Well, that was a great interview. Um, it was. Do you have any final thoughts or anything that particularly impressed you about that? Well, I think we all need to think about a lot of the things that Kevin is doing primarily, that he's living, right? He's living his life in accordance to his, his beliefs and his his compassion. And he's doing the right thing. And he, he's got he's got some pragmatic stuff that he's doing. He mentioned, you know, like helping students with uh, having getting posters or just organizing and, you know, reaching out, uh, making connections, building bridges, all that stuff in a very concrete way. That's so, you know, hopeful, as you said earlier, it's a hopeful thing to see. It is. And of course, you obviously have a much bigger track record of, of real activism than I do, because you were involved in a lot of these causes back, you know, way, way back, you know, when we were practically kids. Right. And so um, it, it really like it speaks to me because I know that I could do more and uh, hopefully I will try to do some more and try to get into this organizing because I think organizing is empowering. And I think the more, that's one of the reasons yeah. why um, <clears throat> I think the right has, has, they've just come out so, so hard against, against this empathy, right. And against this kind of learning against people caring about this stuff, because they know that if people care, they're going to do something. And if they do something, some of them are going to organize. And if they organize, then, yep. you know, it, we're then we're going to win. And because there's right. more of us than there are of them. And this is a minority rule situation. And I want to recap about the Supreme Court. Supreme Court has got five of the six uh, conservative justices were appointed by presidents that were not elected by a majority. And they were yep. confirmed by a Senate that does not accurately represent um, the, the composition of the country. You got uh, 40 senators in, you know, uh, who represent the bulk of the U.S. population from, from, from large states. And then you've got 60 senators who represent a minority of the U.S. population who are able to block anything. So we have this minority rule. And if we're ever 
never going to overturn it. It's going to, it's going to be a hard slog. It's going to be a heavy lift. And it's something that I think people need to understand that this is not the fact that we're losing. This is the fact that the system is rigged. It is rigged by the constitution, yeah. not, not just by, um, you know, current Republicans. The constitution gives them a heavy structural advantage with the electoral college. And we've seen, you know, we talked about the importance at the beginning of the show of the 2000 election and the 2016 election that went the wrong way due to the electoral college. And that right. would have, we would have had, um, you know, if we had a majority, uh, if we had a popular vote majority electing our president, we would have had president Al Gore and we would have had president Hillary Clinton. We'd be living in a completely different world. So this is what I want to wrap up with today is just the understanding that this is very much of an uphill battle. We have to see ourselves like, you know, the rolling the rock up the hill constantly because we are, and, and that's what we're doing. And, and it's, it's almost like we, you see those descriptions of privilege that we've seen where, you know, the, 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 the woman or the person of color has to jump over all these hurdles to get the same distance as the white man yep. gets with, you know, and he's just freely running down the track. Well, we're in the same situation as Democrats is that we have to jump over all these hurdles just to stay even. And that's something yep. that we ha are going to have to just come to terms with. And hopefully it doesn't collapse into a situation of learned helplessness and, you know, retrenchment on our part. Yeah. And I think we need to build small scale, intimate institutions like Kevin is doing to reinvigorate the left and progressive uh, and not progressive ideology and philosophies here in this country. Uh, it, 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 we can't just think about voting. We have to think about, you know, energizing our, our civic life, energizing our public spaces um, and our, our communities, because as 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 um, secular people, we don't have the tradition of church communities and all of that, which is an important, you know, that gives a lot of organizing and, and emotional strength to people. We need to have our own institutions as well and, and build them. And it's a long project. I mean, like Kevin was talking about, this is a long haul project. We're going to have to deal with the fact that we've lost at this yeah. point and, and begin to rebuild. It's a long haul project because what a church does for people is it's a casual place where anyone can go when they feel like they're in trouble and they can go and it's, you know, a lot of churches are very beautiful and there are very friendly people there and it doesn't require a big commitment to be there. Whereas a lot of our institutions yeah. are like institutions of learning or art or things like that that require you to, to sign up for a course of study or whatever. There's not, you know, there's not a lot of secular casual institutions that are connected. And it's, it's not just by the way, sure. You can go and you can go to a meetup with your atheist or secular friends. You can go for a bike ride or a hike. There's a lot of things like that, but they're, they're churches represent a sort of integrated connection from that person who's just having trouble and wants a little help all the right. way up onto the highest levels of politics. And we've got to build that network so that we, we can span that right. ladder going all the way up from the, the struggling secular person going all the way up to, to being able to control policy. Yeah. And you know what used to do that really well? Unions. Unions. There you go. We come full Union circle. Halls, lyceums. Yeah. And they were wiped out, most of them. Yeah. Well, that's because they were effective. Purposely. The other side knows that. And, yes. and you know. They went after them. The first thing they did, go after unions. Yep. And so we can rebuild unions, we can rebuild communities, uh, uh, you know, all, all kinds of ways, art, art communities, 
all kinds of things. That's what we need, we can do. And, and by the way, this is not hard work. This is like life affirming work. You're gonna you're gonna be be happier and be a better person for doing it and achieve something good. Yep. So that's what I suggest. I agree. And we just, you know, we just all need, we need leadership. We need to be leaders. <laughs> and, um, that's something it's a, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. It's something that, that, you know, requires a commitment from, from us. And I think that's something that we all have to have to figure out how much we're willing to give to change the world. Right. So I will leave it there. Remember, if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out our Patreon and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles periodically in our journal at the radicalsecular.com. I'm Sean Prophet. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. Secular Podcast is written and produced by Christoph Defoe, Sean Prophet, and Joe Okipinti. Logo and main title designed by Tim Stetner. Post-production and original theme music by Sean Prophet. Special thanks to our support team, Lindsay Brightman, Jillian Sky Jacobs, and Lori Field Okipinti. Okay.